Hello, and welcome to the latest DAC Beechcraft's Lawcast. My name is Emma Fuller, Head of Motor and Casualty Market Strategy for the Claim Solutions Group of DAC Beechcraft. In this podcast, Claire Moore, Chris Baranowski and Emma Bowens from our Safety, Health and Environment team discuss what to expect in the health and safety arena in the second half of 2023. Hello and welcome to our DAC Beechcroft podcast, where we'll be discussing three things to watch out for in the health and safety arena across the rest of the year. My name is Claire Moore and I'm joined by my colleagues Chris Baranowski and Emma Bowens from the Safety, Health and Environment team. Hi Claire. Hi Claire. Hi. <laughs> Hi Chris. Hi Emma. This podcast is part of a series of short podcasts covering three areas of focus for insurers across a range of different areas of DACB specialism. If you haven't already, do listen to our Vehicle Hire and Damage podcast, which was delivered by our colleagues, Emma Fuller and Helen Mason. So our top three things to watch out for during the rest of the year are firstly, silica dust risks. Secondly, the Building Safety Act. And third, Um, changes to HSE prosecution protocol. So beginning with silica dust, there is a current campaign by the HSE to inform businesses of the risks of silica dust and the steps they need to take to protect workers. Exposure to silica dust is the biggest risk to construction workers after asbestos and exposure can cause lung cancer and other respiratory disease. It's clearly a really serious risk for construction businesses and their employees. So Emma, what is silica dust and what do businesses need to do to be managing silica dust? Um, Thanks, Claire. So silica is a natural substance. It's found in quartz, rock and sand and is used in construction materials like bricks, tiles and concrete. But also you can find it in items, things like countertops and tables. The dust is effectively small particles that become airborne during processing. So, for example, drilling, cutting, sanding and other work processes. The impact of breathing in the dust is a risk that needs to be addressed and controlled like other workplace risks. If the dust gets into the lungs, it can cause diseases such as silicosis and bronchitis and has a very significant impact on health over a period of time. So people will be used to us talking to them about controlling risks concerning asbestos in terms of work-related risks that cause serious lung diseases. But now there's much greater focus on the controls in relation to silica dust. And as you say, Claire, the HSC have been running a campaign to raise awareness in relation to silica dust and also to ensure that employers have the appropriate measures in place to keep workers safe. And, you know, rightly so, it's it's thought that there are around 4,000 deaths annually uh, due to COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases caused by workplace exposure. And aside from the number of deaths caused, these conditions are extremely debilitating and have, you know, symptoms that are really very difficult to live with, things like breathlessness, prolonged coughing and chronic disability. Right. Um, So Emma, do do you think there's likely to be more prosecutions for businesses who are failing to manage silica dust, given this focus by the HSE? I mean, are we hearing of a focus on inspections of construction sites, for example? 
Yes, absolutely. So the HSE ran an initiative last October targeting the manufacturing sector. And in May of this year, 2023, the HSE started a further initiative in construction. So inspectors are visiting sites. They are checking to make sure that employers have identified the issue, that they understand the risks and the control measures that are needed to protect workers from inhaling construction dusts. So that would be silica and also wood dust as well. So some of those control measures might include local exhaust ventilation, water suppression and respiratory protective equipment as well. So at these inspections, the HSC will also want to be assured that asbestos-containing materials have been identified and removed or managed where necessary to prevent exposure. And of course, it's true to say that whilst the HSC are on site, if they see other safety risks or issues, the inspectors will also want to address those. And if they amount to a material breach, it could lead to further action. So it's really important that employers review the risks on site and make sure that they are taking the right precautions and there is some really useful guidance on the HSE's website on this which was just refreshed last year. From what you're saying Emma it sounds like we could see prosecutions for failure to manage silica just arising from these HSE inspections rather than any reports of of ill health particularly given the disease may develop over a long period of time. What impact um, do you think a successful prosecution could have on potential civil claims, which may be further down the line? Well, I think, I guess, a successful prosecution raises a general awareness of a problem with an organisation's control measures, uh, and that could potentially open the floodgates, you know, resulting in further claims. I guess, you know, workers would start to think about what work they've done in the past and whether that might have contributed towards their ill health and they may consider bringing a claim as a result. Thanks Emma, that's really interesting. Um, We're going to move now to our second topic which is the Building Safety Act. Um, So experts are saying that it's the biggest shake-up of the regulation of building safety in the UK in over 40 years. Chris, which buildings and businesses will be affected by these changes? This Act will eventually affect three broad areas, Claire. There's the design and construction of new builds and residential conversions. There is also the management of safety in residential blocks once they've been occupied and also remedying historic defects which could make residential buildings unsafe. Now, while there are parts of the Act that will apply to all buildings, for example, in relation to the construction materials used or the competency of those involved in design and construction, Most of the focus has been on the measures that will apply to higher risk buildings. The new rules will apply to what the Act defines as higher risk buildings. And these are buildings that are either 18 meters high or have at least seven stories and contain at least two residential units. This will bring mixed use developments into the new regime as well as purely residential blocks as long as they meet the height criteria. And I think it's worth noting that purpose-built student accommodation blocks of the specified height will also be included. So, Chris, what about those organisations that do manage these higher-risk buildings? What are they going to need to think about? Once a higher-risk building has been completed and is then occupied, the focus of the new building safety regime then shifts to monitoring 
and managing risks from the spread of fire or structural failure. So responsibility will lie with the accountable person or persons, and this will be whoever controls or is obliged to repair the common parts, the structure or exterior. So it's likely to be the long-term building owner. The accountable person can be an individual, a partnership or a company. And where there is more than one accountable person, they will have a duty to cooperate with each other. And Chris, are, are there specific duties on the accountable person, such as, say, information they have to provide to the building safety regulator? Yes, there are very much a number of duties that they will have to comply with. And these are actually set out in the higher risk buildings, key building information regulations 2023, which came into force earlier this year on the 6th of April. These regulations specify the information that the accountable person must provide to the regulator in relation to higher risk buildings. And they also set out which parts of a higher risk building an accountable person is responsible for where there are multiple accountable persons. For buildings with more than one accountable person, there needs to be a principal accountable person. And what sort of information does that principal accountable person have to provide to the regulator? They have to provide what's termed as key building information to the regulator. And that, for example, includes details of the material that's being used in the external walls, the insulation, the roof and the structure of the building. It may also include a description of the type of evacuation strategy that's in place for the high risk building and a list of the fire and smoke control equipment within the building and their locations. The principal accountable person must provide this information to the regulator electronically within 28 days of submitting an application to register that high risk building. In order to enable the principal accountable person to fulfill its obligations, each accountable person must provide the principal accountable person with key building information for the parts of the building that they're responsible for on request or within 28 days of becoming aware of any changes. Using the key building information, the principal accountable person is also required to prepare what's called a safety case report. This is a document that summarizes the safety case for the building. The report should identify the building's major fire and structural hazards and set out how the principal accountable person is managing and controlling these risks. The report should demonstrate that the principal accountable person has taken all reasonable steps to prevent any building safety incidents and the measures taken to reduce the severity of any incidents if they occur. The requirements around maintaining key building information on the safety case report are key aspects of the golden thread principle which is a key part of the building safety reforms. The golden thread is defined as both the information that allows you to understand a building and the steps needed to keep both the building and people safe now and in the future. If an accountable person is in breach of these obligations, they may be prosecuted. Thanks, Chris. That's really interesting. And it sounds like principal accountable persons and accountable persons are going to have to get on top of these obligations pretty quickly. Absolutely. 
Um, moving on to a, a slightly different but related topic, um, I understand there have been some changes to fire safety legislation. Um, what are the main changes, Chris, in, in that area? Well, I'll try and summarise these as succinctly as I can, but there's been some significant changes as a result of the Fire Safety England regulations, which came into force earlier this year on the 23rd of January. These regulations impose specific and ongoing obligations on the responsible person in relation to fire safety in line with the duties outlined in the Building Safety Act. The responsible person is broadly the owner of the building or the employer if the building is used for a business. And what are the requirements going to be um, on the responsible person? The requirements of the responsible person do actually vary according to the height of the building. There are some obligations which apply to all buildings of any height, which contain two or more residential units with common parts used for emergency evacuation. These require the responsible person for example, to display the fire safety instructions, including the, the evacuation strategy for the building, instructions on how to report a fire. They also have to provide information about fire doors, in particular to keep them shut when not in use, not to tamper with the self-closing devices, and to report any faults or damage immediately. This information has to be provided to all new residents, and to all residents every 12 months. The more stringent obligations apply to high-rise residential buildings, and they include a requirement, for example, to prepare a record of the design of the external walls of the building and prepare a floor plan and building plan identifying the key features of the building. These have to be provided to the local fire and rescue authority. In terms of more stringent obligations, it also requires carrying out monthly checks of fire lifts and any firefighting equipment with the building and to rectify any faults and keep records of those checks accessible to the building residents. There's also a requirement to ensure the building contains wayfinding signage, which identifies each floor within stairways and lift lobbies and identifies each flat. As the regulations are now in force, building owners should really now be complying with them. And what about enforcement, Chris? Who's going to enforce these new duties? Well, Claire, the new regulations will be monitored and enforced by the local fire rescue authorities. That's because they have the power to carry out fire safety inspections and enforce compliance with the regulations by issuing, for example, fire safety notices, imposing fines and even prosecutions in the more severe cases. In order to comply with the regulations, it's important that landlords carry out a comprehensive fire risk assessment of their properties, install and maintain appropriate fire safety systems and equipment, and provide their tenants with clear and comprehensive fire safety information. It's important to note that the new regulations are in addition to the fire checks required by the Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order 2005, which defines the meaning of a responsible person and contains further duties. Thanks, Chris. And what about any key dates that we need to be aware of that are coming up within the next year? That's a good question, Claire. And, and in relation to building safety, on the 12th of April this year, registration actually opened for existing high-rise residential buildings and the deadline for registering 
is the 30th of September. Failure by a principal accountable person to register by the 30th of September will constitute a criminal offence if a high-risk building is occupied but not registered without reasonable excuse. And those sanctions can include an unlimited fine and or up to two years imprisonment. The next key date to be aware of is the 1st of October this year, when registration opens for new high-rise residential buildings. This means that buildings completed from the 1st of October onwards must be registered before the building can be occupied. In addition, on this date, it's expected that we will see the following coming into force. Amendments to the Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order. The Building Safety Regulator will become the Building Control Body for Higher Risk Buildings. Registration is also expected to open for building inspectors and building control approvers. Gateway 2 and Gateway 3 are expected to come into effect. We'll also see new regulations on the golden thread for the safety case, a new regulatory framework for construction products. In addition, we anticipate seeing new regulations on mandatory occurrence reporting and the building safety levy is expected to come into force. So there's quite a lot going at around that time. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's clear that there's a lot going on at the moment in terms of building safety and with the deadlines fast approaching, relevant organisations are going to have to be um, on top of that and, and you know, aware of the deadlines. Um, moving on to our third topic then, um, which is changes to HSE prosecution protocol. Emma, um, we hear there have been some changes to the HSE prosecution protocol. Um, could you tell us about those changes and what impact they're having on prosecutions for health and safety offences? Yes, I think if we're considering the HSE's current approach, it's worth mentioning their 10-year strategy, which was introduced last year, protecting people and places. Um, they've been very focused on making sure that we maintain our record in Great Britain as being one of the safest countries to work in. And the HSC have made it really clear that everyone has a stake in improving health and safety and that everyone must play their part. So they want to see that employers are ensuring compliance in their workplaces and also the HSE strategy is underpinned by the fundamental principle that those who create the risks are best placed to manage them. So they expect employers to have the necessary skills, knowledge and experience to manage safety risks for themselves. The HSE's strategy also sets out strategic themes which will guide their regulatory activities for the next decade. And one of those themes is ensuring a fair and just HSE. And what that means is that the HSE will target high-risk activities. They will challenge organisations that have poor health and safety records and just to make sure that they improve. And as you would expect, they will use their full range of enforcement approaches to take appropriate action uh, against organisations that don't comply with the law and to put people at risk by cutting corners for profit. And Chris... What, what do we understand is meant by the, the full range of enforcement approaches that the HSE refer to? It's a good question, Claire. I think it's worth just reflecting on what that means, because by way of reminder, the HSE do have a number of enforcement methods available to them in terms of what the inspectors can do. 
and that includes providing written information regarding any breaches of law. They can require improvements in the way risks are managed, and that's usually by way of a formal service of, a, of an improvement notice. They can stop certain activities where they create serious risks. And finally, they can recommend and bring prosecutions where there has been a serious breach of the law. Yeah, and it, I think it's also important for organisations to be aware that the HSC will take into account specific factors about the organisation before making a decision, which will include things like so relevant history of related incidents, a history of relevant enforcement action, whether the duty holder themselves were deliberately seeking an economic advantage. They'll also consider things like the harm that's been caused. They will think about the inspection history that they've got. They'll also take into account the standard of sort of general condition. So, for example, if the inspector identifies a general failure of compliance across a range of issues during the site visit, then that's obviously going to be taken into account. And the inspector's assessment of the duty holder themselves will also be relevant. So they might consider whether the organisation is is actually fully capable of complying with the law and whether it is strongly committed to complying with the law and whether it can be trusted to put matters right where that's necessary. So these are all sort of crucial factors that will influence the HSE's enforcement decisions. And Chris, what have you been seeing on the ground in terms of the HSE's current approach to enforcement? Well, Claire, I mean, taking into account those factors that Emma's just mentioned, certainly our experience probably over the last 12 months is that the HSC have been much more selective regarding the incidents that they choose to fully investigate and then consider bringing a prosecution on. So there's currently greater potential, in our view, for organisations to actually avoid prosecutions. But this requires a proper and effective incident response plan and early advice to ensure that the correct tactical decisions are taken from the outset, in particular to try and positively influence the HSE's enforcement decisions and avoid a full investigation. I think it's important for organisations to also be aware that although there may be a greater chance of avoiding a prosecution in the current climate, it's essential that organisations do comply with, for example, improvement notices because failure to do so can itself lead to a prosecution. And a good example of this is in a recently reported case where the HSC had issued improvement notices to a construction company relating to poor welfare on site and an insufficient asbestos survey. Although the notices were complied with, the HSC continued to investigate the initial cause of the partial building collapse in this case the company and its director were not forthcoming with the requested information over a number of months. The HSC then made another visit to the house when further health and safety breaches were found, which included inadequate prevention of exposure to silica dust while cutting roof tiles. The HSC found that they had failed to comply with the final improvement notice, and because the director demonstrated a lack of accountability throughout the interactions with the HSC, he was also found to have failed to comply in his role as a director. Consequently, both the company and the director were convicted of health and safety offences and received fines. 
That's a really interesting case, Chris. Um, and it's right, Emma, that, that fines for health and safety offences are significant. Absolutely. So over the HSE's 12-month reporting period in 2021 and 2022, there were five prosecutions where fines were over a million pounds. And we've recently even seen fines over four million pounds in some cases. But I think it's also important to mention that in the same 12-month period, there were 52 HSE prosecutions that resulted in prison sentences or community service rehabilitation orders. And um, in this last year, we have seen individuals receive very long prison sentences, more than 10 years in some cases. So you're absolutely right, Claire, the, the penalties in this area are very, very significant. Thanks, Emma. Um, that's really interesting. Hopefully, um, you found the podcast useful today. We've come to the end of our um, three topics to watch out for over the coming months. Um, hopefully, it's given you some points to think about. If you have any questions on anything we have covered today, please do let us know by emailing us at she, which is S-H-E at dacbeachcroft.com. She stands for Safety, Health and Environment. We're planning further podcasts on a range of health and safety topics. So if you'd like to be added to our mailing list, please let us know at that email address at she at dacbeachcroft.com. If there are any particular topics you would like us to cover, please let us know as well, as it's always helpful to have feedback on the areas that are of most concern to you. We can also help organisations prepare, in particular through training, such as our mock investigation workshops and sessions on managing a major incident. We can also provide immediate access to legal advice through our crisis response helpline. So please do get in touch via the email address if we can assist in any way. Thank you to Chris and Emma for joining me today. And thanks to you all for listening. Thank you, Claire. Thanks, Claire.